Well, hey, like Brandon said, uh, good morning to those of you who are masked in the room. Um, and man, if you're checking us out online in your jammies or golden grams, it's great to have you guys here. Uh, quick housekeeping thing, uh, I guess kind of two prongs to that. First is be watching. We're going to send out a video announcement this week. Unfortunately, that means you'll have to tolerate my annoying face for a minute and a half on that as well. But we're going to give you some more information about kind of what we're doing here with services and opening things up. Uh, but just to give you a heads up real quickly now in case some of you missed that, we've kind of done whatever, tried to do what everybody else has done, right, kind of phases. And for a while, we were all closed down. Then here at Calvary, we opened up on July 5th for kind of phase one, if you will, which is this. We've done uh, two services for five or six weeks now in masks. And as we've kind of just thought about those things and looked at them, um, we've decided to do something, kind of move into a phase two. And phase two is going to feel a little weird, but phase three is coming. Here's phase two. We, man, our, our heart, we want to serve our volunteers and our team members and our tech folks and different folks. And so I, what we're going to do is we've watched numbers for about five or six weeks now, and we can easily get everybody for right now who wants to come into one service. And so starting next week until about September 20th, we're going to do one service at 930, and then we're going to live stream that service like we're doing now. Now, if <clears throat> next week 274 people cannot wait to walk into the building, hey, we'll get up here and say, huh, that was a mistake. We're doing two services, okay? But uh, the trend has not showed that. The trend is that when we start getting into late, late August, mm, September-ish, more people are then going to start thinking about maybe coming back, okay? So from now until September 20th, it's going to be one service, 9.30, this service, live stream that as well. And then starting uh, September 27th, we're going to kind of be in our phase three opening, and that will, it will be highly unlikely if there's not two services again, and those two services may have some different options. We're, we have dry erase boards and PowerPoints, and we're really thinking about what that looks like. As part of that, we're probably going to send out another survey to you who are here and you at home and whoever is in our database. It'll be helpful as we formulate what that looks like. Um, so for now, for the next five weeks or whatever that is, we're going to be one service this one. Keep registering. If, if at any point it looks like we're getting to a point where there's more demand, then supply, we'll do two services. But that's kind of what's coming up down the pike. So you know what? You should still listen to the video announcement because there may be more nuggets of goodness. But that was a little foreshadowing of uh, what we're going to do there. So we're here this Sunday. Had a, uh, man, just an encouraging first service uh, like we say every week. It's, it's just we're so grateful for those of you online who maybe are new to Calvary or you're part of Calvary and you're just not ready to come back. We get it, but thanks for your faithfulness in checking us out every week from your couch. And for those of you who are coming back, it's always cool um, to start seeing you know, some new faces coming back. So we're, it's an honor for your pastors and leaders and elders to be able to serve you guys and minister to you. And we're very grateful for your prayers and your support. So, so thanks. And we're grateful we have a chance to press into God's word. So that's what we're going to do again this morning. And so I'm going to pray, and then we'll see what God has for us. Uh, Father, we are grateful <clears throat> again to come to your word, and uh, we're grateful that, like Brandon said, God, your word has power, and throughout countless moments in all sorts of different countries and time frames and historical events, your word has remained unchanged, and your word speaks. And so we come to you today, Father, in the moment that we're in as our church and our culture and in the text in which you have us. And Father, we're grateful for how you may speak to us through that again today. And so um, I pray that as we, we think about these things, Father, that we get a glimpse of your heart, which inspired Paul to write this, his heart in writing it, and that 
my heart and the heart of our team will be accurately communicated and conveyed throughout this service. Father, will you give grace to enable that to happen? And may we be a church and disciples that honor Jesus as we think about how you want us to live. We pray this in the name of our King, who is sovereign, who is ruling, who died for us and deserves the glory, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're clicking, like if you were looking for your favorite fishing show and you clicked onto our link this morning, or if you know, you're, you're newer to Calvary and just been watching us online and never come back, or if you're here today and you've never been to Calvary before, what I periodically say is one of the kind of the DNAs is what we do at Calvary is we open up a book of the scripture and we go through that paragraph through paragraph. I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, on a Monday kind of think about what should I talk about today? What hot button issue is there we should address? What I do is I say, man, where are we in the Bible? And then we talk about where we are in the Bible. And that's what we're doing. We're going through this book of Ephesians, a letter written by a pastor to a church who lived in Ephesus a long time ago. And some of you may have been here or tuned in last week. This is part two of the part one series, right? We were kind of like MacGyver, that amazing 1980s show last week. You know, MacGyver was about to fall off the cliff in his Jeep and what was going to happen to him. And we said to be continued. And that's kind of what we did in the service last week, right? We're, we're breaking this text into two different sermons. And if you were here last week, which you may remember, and even if you weren't, Paul, in the paragraphs we're in today, addressed an issue that was so relevant in his culture, addressed an issue that the Christians in his church were facing, and it's an issue that, man, really is so timely for us today. It's always interesting how you open up. We plan, I planned this months and months ago, and it's always fascinating for me as a guy who gets to communicate God's Word to be in a passage of Scripture and be like, we couldn't have planned this to be any more timely. Today we're in a passage that wasn't just timely for them, but it's timely for us. It's the second chapter of Ephesians. We're finishing up in verses 11 through 22. Paul addressed this relevant issue, and, and here's what we saw last week, just a quick review. Man, the city of Ephesus, the culture in which this was written, we talked about how there are all sorts of different people groups. There were different races, different ethnicities, different uh, backgrounds and cultures, and all these people were in this kind of melting pot of this city and with all those people there, there was a lot of division among different groups. There was one group we talked about who looked down on another group. There was another group who thought they were better than this other group. They're superior to them. I don't want to be near them. Lots of division among these different groups. And that division had slowly started to creep into the church. And the specific way in which it crept into the church was two specific groups. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And, and not only did they have a hard time getting along, not only did they each not want anything to do with each other because some of them thought they were better than the other, man, that division, that racism, that prejudice had crept into the church of Ephesus and was starting to impact it and create division. And so Paul writes to the church in Ephesus with these different groups of people in this city with two different groups with great red, uh, racism and animosity between the two, and he's trying to correct them. And he's trying to kind of get them back on track. And, and the kind of the big text that we talked about last week was verses 13 through 16. Here's what we unpacked, and here's what he said last week. He's talking to these two groups, and he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. <clears throat> and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing all hostility. Made us both one, broken down the dividing wall of hostilities, wants to bring peace, right? Wants to do away with hostility. And what we saw was that God's design, God's desire for the world you know, out there, but, but it's got to start with the world in here. This is what God wants from churches. He wanted that from this church. He wants this from all churches. He doesn't want a group of followers who are divided by what is different. He wanted a group of different followers united by what they have in common. God's design is not a group of people who are divided by what is differing them among their race, among their backgrounds, among their culture, among their ethnicity. His design, his goal is a bunch of different people from all different backgrounds and races united by what they share in common. And that's kind of where we got last week. And as MacGyver was going off the cliff as we were winding on our sermon, what we said is that probably doesn't surprise anybody. There was probably nobody who was sitting here who had checked us out online live or listened to us later in the week who heard that teaching, who thought to themselves, oh my goodness, I've never thought before that God doesn't like racism. There's probably nobody who thought, oh my goodness, like I'm shocked that I shouldn't be prejudiced, right? That the challenge for us, the teaching, the fact that God doesn't like racism and God is against prejudice, Right? That, that's not necessarily the challenge to wrap our arms around. The challenge to sometimes wrap our arms around is, okay, well, based on that truth, what do we do? Based on that truth, how do we apply it? How do we apply it for people who will say, yeah, I'm a white person, and I don't think I have any racism, and so okay, what do I do with this? How do we apply it? If there's maybe people who are listening who say, yeah, you know what? I do have a group that I have some animosity to. I don't like it. What do I do with it? And so today we're going to talk about in part two, it's just kind of those issues of application. Okay, what do we do with this for our church and our moment, for you and for me together? How do we kind of get some skin in the game and what are some, some practical things we can do? And that's what we're going to talk about, right? We, we always, no matter what the truth of the scripture is, we want to think about how to apply it and we're going to devote today's sermon thinking about some things. How do we as Christians, <clears throat> how do we uh, as white Christians largely apply this? But like we said last week, it's not only white Christians because it seems that Every group often has another group that they don't necessarily think highly of. So how do we apply these things? So I'm going to give you four or five ideas. We're going to talk about them. And here's the first way we can apply this. First thing is this, right? If, if we want to do well, we said last week this is a discipleship issue, right? This is part of what we want to be as disciples in Jesus. And so the first thing we can do is in this whole issue, we can increase our awareness. We can increase our awareness, we can increase our awareness in issues of racism and perspectives of those involved. If you're a white Christian, just because you may, and I kind of know we know this, but it helps to remind ourselves, if you're a white Christian, just because you don't commit overt racist acts, just because that's not something that you do, that doesn't mean that your brothers and sisters and Jesus of other racial backgrounds don't experience acts of racial injustice and prejudice. We need to increase our awareness, and sometimes we're governed by our own story, and just because you don't commit those acts doesn't mean that there aren't other people who have those acts committed against them. Barna, George Barna, does a lot of polls 
largely in the issues of Christianity. In 2016, he did a poll of white evangelical Christians in addressing racial tension. Here was his summary state, one of the summary statements of those polls. He says this, if you're a white evangelical Christian, you are less likely to think that race is a problem, but more likely to think that you are the victim of reverse racism. You are also less likely to think that people of color are socially disadvantaged. If Barn is right, then the tension sometimes for us white evangelicals can be that, right? We use our perception, we use I don't commit racist acts to think that that is then the reality for everybody when there's brothers and sisters in Jesus of a different color who are like, man, you, you don't get it. You don't know my story, right? He, so how do we increase awareness? If one of the things we can do as disciples is to grow in this area, how do we increase awareness? Well, the first kind of way, right? Not, this isn't, I'm not going to get a Nobel Peace Prize for any of these ideas. But we increase awareness by listening. We increase awareness by listening to the experiences, to the stories of people who are of different racial backgrounds, to hear what they're saying. And when we listen, we listen. We don't do what I do with pizza restaurants. If, if I was to ask any of you, hey, what's your favorite pizza restaurant? <clears throat> you, would, you would start talking. You'd be like, oh, I like this place because the crust, halfway into your story, I'm just going to confess right now. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to interrupt you. Because if I think you've chosen a pizza place that doesn't make sense, I'll be like, bro, you are wrong. The crust there is terrible. The sausage is greasy, right? It's okay to interrupt people. If you tell me your experience at a pizza place and I interrupt you, that's very rude. But we don't do that when people are telling us their stories about racism and prejudice they've experienced just because we haven't committed it, just because we don't experience it. We don't correct them and tell them that, that what they're telling us they feel isn't true because we're not in their shoes. We listen. In 2016, after Michael Brown was killed in a police incident in Ferguson, some of you may resemble, remember Ferguson, there's a, uh, man, about a month ago I quoted lyrics from Trip Lee. Here's another hip-hop artist, rapper. There's a Christian rapper, a black Christian hip-hop artist who was kind of on this trend of, man, Christian hip-hop, he's won all sorts of awards. His name's Lecrae. And in 2016, in response to the Ferguson situations, he, as a Christian black, hundreds of thousands of followers person, wrote on his social media in response to that. And in his social media posts, he said that he was praying for the people of Ferguson, that he affirmed the value that black lives matter. You'll hear in a minute, there's a great difference between the value that black lives matter and the organization black lives matter. He posted on social media, not supporting the organization, but the value that black lives matter. And in response to him saying he was praying for the people of Christian because there's value in black society and the lives of black people, he shares how he got all sorts of negative pushback, much of which from white Christians. That they told him in response on social media that he was being divisive, that he was playing the race card, that if he was going to pray for any people, he should pray for the police. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for the police. 
In response to that, in response to him sharing some support and some prayers and getting the pushback, he then posted another thing out there, telling his experience in response to that. And, and here's something we can listen to from a Christian black brother who got feedback when he got this. He writes this. These are excerpts in part. <clears throat> I navigate different cultures daily, and I understand how people can make false assumptions because of their lack of interactions with the cultures I find myself in. But if they don't frequent these spaces much, how can they rush to judgment? There was Mike Brown, then Eric Garner, and then hashtag, 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 people kept killing us. As I shared my heart, my supporters turned on me, even more fans and friends. There was no empathy, though some comments were just evil and hurtful. Others were steeped in ignorance and lack of perspective. They didn't get it. Understand there is a distinct difference, distinct is capitalized in this thing, between the organization Black Lives Matter and the sentiment Black Lives Matter. My agreement with the sentiment is not my endorsement of the organization, yet some people think we are just whining about the past. But we're not. We are trying to expose how the past has affected the present and threatens the future. Can people not see it? If you enslave and torture a people for 400 years, tell them they are free, but torture them another 100 years, and then give them rights begrudgingly 50 years ago, how can you expect zero systemic effects? You can't wipe away a 500-year trauma in 50 years. But just as I don't hate the cops, I'm not mad at white people, <clears throat> but I am disturbed at the supremacy and the disparities that still exist. And what's ironic is that I'm so bothered because Jesus actually challenges me to not only care for the souls of all humanity, but to feed the hungry, aid the sick, regard the stranger, visit the prisoner, and love my neighbor in tangible ways. That's what one black Christian said in response to some pushback he got when he expressed racism that he felt. Does that voice speak for every black Christian or every person who's... No. Right? I mean, other black Christians could write in response to Lecrae disagreeing with Lecrae. That's fine, but the point is we need to listen. We need to listen. And just because white evangelicals may think that racism is not an issue does not mean that minority Christians have a to might have a totally different experience and insight that we need to listen to. We want to be people as disciples who increase our awareness in this issue. We increase our awareness by listening and another way we increase our awareness, right, is by reading, by reading, by, by trying to listen. And if you don't like to read, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, right? We, we want to educate ourselves on issues that are important. So I've done, I felt like I was back in law school or seminary these past, I don't know, two or three weeks. I've done a ton of reading on this issue. My yellow highlighter, I've like burned through them, right? I've kept staples busy. Let me give you, if you're interested in saying, man, what, what, what can I read on this issue? I just want to give you some resources, okay? You can get it on Amazon, you can get it at your independent bookstore, you can do whatever you want to do, okay? First one, the first two are Christian books written by Christians on the issue, The Color of Compromise. <clears throat> Second one, that was written by a gentleman named Jamar Tisby, who's a scholar in this area, a Christian scholar. Second one's called Rediscipling the White Church, written by a pastor in a multi-ethnic church in Chicago by, by the name of David Swanson. Third book isn't a Christian book. It's a book that, interestingly, I read uh, 
before the whole George Floyd situation. It's called The Warmth of a Thousand Suns. It's a secular nonfiction book, and it tracks the true stories of three black individuals and their families who left the South because of slavery or racism, who migrated to the Northeast, and the different experience they had in the Northeast, which wasn't necessarily any better. Um, now, <clears throat> let me say this about that. You may not agree with everything in here. There may be pages that you read, there may be sentences you read in these books, there may be paragraphs, there may be pages, there may be chapters that you passionately think the people are wrong. That's okay, right? We don't need to totally agree with everything. What we do is we agree to hear the thoughts of other people and then when we don't like it, we interact with it and we think about why do I disagree? That is healthy and robust to be critical readers. So I'm not saying that every single one of these things, you're gonna love every sentence you read. You probably may not. But if you want to know about what people are talking about, if you want to get a finger on the pulse in this issue, man, these are some great pieces to start with. If, when you were in 11th grade or 12th grade, you finished Macbeth, and you said, I shall, I vow on my first child, I will never read a book again, that's okay. I guess you could do that. Then this last resource I would highly recommend, and even if you love reading but don't want to read the top three, man, for all of us, I'd recommend this last resource. Write it down. Take a picture of it. Uh, anybody ever heard of the VeggieTales? VeggieTales, veg. Look at that. When the crowd's smaller, it's like a song and dance show up here, okay? Okay, well, the last one is not a VeggieTales. You're not going to see Bob the Cucumber, but it's by the man who wrote VeggieTales, Phil Vischer. <clears throat> that, he's got a new ministry, it's called Holy Post, where he does YouTube kind of video blog things. It's a 17-minute video, and it's a 17-minute video that try to unpack, we'll talk about this word again a little bit, just, but man, you've heard like people talk about uh, racism in different structures. This video starts with slavery and unpacks different policies, different things that happened in the United States that were negative and harmful to black people that impacted them in negative and harmful ways and he walks through that and it again you may not agree with everything um but man it's excellent and i don't know everything by any stretch of the imagination i only know a little but i know a little of a little and there were things in this video that i historical facts of what decisions have been made in america that i didn't even know were true hadn't heard before about some real estate laws and realtor license, and it was fascinating. And I would highly recommend that to you if you just want to increase your awareness. First thing we want to do in this issue to in is increase our awareness. The next two things go hand in hand with each other, okay? So kind of next idea is, man, if we want to be people who show that the dividing wall of hostility is gone, that there's peace between all people group, that he wants us to be one, right? Here, here's the, another thing we can do. Value relationships with others who are different than you. <clears throat> Value relationships with others who are different with you. And you need to hear me on this. I said this last week, but if you're online or if you're here, I don't know your heart. So I in no way, or on behalf of any of our staff or elders, I'm not standing up here saying, implying that we don't do this, that you don't do this, right? If, if you hear me throughout the sermon tell us we need to listen and we don't know people's perspectives and to value relationships. And if you go home or if you just want to get up now and your thought is, I can't believe that guy's saying I'm racist, you have totally missed the point because you're assuming something that I'm not saying. 
I am in no way suggesting that anybody in here is racist. I don't know your heart. That's not the point, right? The point is not for you to think I'm accusing you because I'm not. I ain't, right? As I say in Savannah, Georgia, I ain't doing that. What I am doing, I'm saying this, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. In a moment in our culture where racism is a highly charged issue and God in his sovereignty has us in this issue, I planned this thing months ago. And the point of this sermon is God and his sovereignty as a place, as a church, where we're looking as a text, and if we think about we should value relationships with people different than us, we have an amazing opportunity to simply ask questions about how well we do that individually and how well we do that as a church. Let's think about that as a church, right? Let's think about, man, do, valuing relationships with others different than us. As a white pastor, a question that I need to ask in this is this, do I, in my leadership of the church, or just in this, do we unknowingly put up barriers that might keep people who look different than us from coming here? Do we unknowingly do that? We have to kind of think about, do minorities feel welcome and comfortable when they do come? Do all people feel welcome and comfortable when they do come? Do minorities feel welcome and comfortable when they do come. I don't remember the exact um, facts of this story. I don't remember what caused me to do this, but I remember in Greenville, South Carolina, one of my chapters there, I remember visiting on a Sunday morning going to worship in an all-black church. A lady, a co-worker of mine, was a deaconess in that church. I don't remember if she invited me. or I just, I don't remember why, but I remember I can see the church. I remember going to the church, walking into the church, that experience. I was the only white person in that church. And man, it was an amazing experience, totally different than us, right? I mean, there were the deaconesses who had on the white dresses, and they were actively involved. They had the white hats, totally different worship experience. I felt so welcomed. I felt like every single person there genuinely came up. They talked to me, right? They embraced me. There was no COVID back then. I felt totally welcome there. But you know what? I didn't feel comfortable. Because you know why? Man, I knew I was thinking about, in my own insecurity, I stand out. I was in a group of people, and I thought to myself, I stand out here right? I know I stand out. I think everybody else in the room realizes I stand out. I think everybody else in the room realizes that I realize that I know that I think they stand out. And, and I, I just, was I welcome? Yes. And my, was I comfortable? No, because I thought, man, I wonder if they're thinking, why am I here? What am I doing here? And, and here's what this means for us. Just because I, as a white pastor, maybe you as a white attendee of a predominantly white church, we yearn and our heart, man, we want everybody who comes here to feel comfortable doesn't necessarily mean that everybody might, right? And if people don't, are there things that we can do to be more sensitive to help everybody feel comfortable here in a way to be more loving and unifying? It's just a question we need to ask. A question we need to ask is this, do we represent the diversity that God would have us have based on our geographic location. And if we don't, what then would God have us do? Now, I'm not attempting to answer all those questions today. I don't necessarily know the answer to all those questions today, right? I do know that to figure out the answer to some of those questions, I'm not the guy to figure that out. We, I need to listen. But man, as we think about valuing relationships with people other than us, those are some ways that we as a church can think about doing that. Don't have all the answers, but 
They seem valid questions to ask. There's something that goes hand in hand with this idea of valuing relationships with others who are different than us. And sometimes what writers will think about is, man, white Christians, white churches kind of get this idea of valuing relationships with others than us, others different than us. And they're genuine and they're meaningful, but sometimes what a lot of people suggest is that whites sometimes gauge success in this area as increasing friendship with minorities or increasing the multi-ethnicity in a church. And those are good things. But what a lot of scholars and what a lot of Christians, what a lot of thinkers suggest is, but they can't be the only thing that white evangelical churches think about doing in this issue. Good things should be done, should be thought about, questions should be asked, but that shouldn't be the only thing we do to think about success in this area. What this pastor who pastors a multi-ethnic church in Chicago writes is this. Two different places out of that book, Rediscipling the White Church, which echoes the words of many other writers in this area. Appealing to increased racial diversity in our white churches or to our own personal friends of color as evidence of racial reconciliation is overly optimistic and detached from reality. Such reconciliation can be accomplished without ever acknowledging, much less addressing, the underlying reasons for racial and ethnic divisions. Next thought that he mentioned earlier, but here's what it says. It is possible <clears throat> to build a multiracial ministry that leaves structures of racism totally undisturbed. Well, what he's saying is, man, you can increase your multi-ethnicity. You can have relationships with people who are different than you. And this, we're talking, right, this isn't just black. This is of all ethnicities. You can have those things. Those are good things that Jesus wants us to have. But what he's suggesting is you can have those things without even thinking about or trying to speak into the things that have caused a lot of those divisions and issues and concerns and unfairness to exist initially. It's an interesting word he has there, this word structures of racism. Maybe the past few weeks <clears throat> you've heard, and we did when Rob Turner and Alex and we were up here talking, we, we heard the phrase systemic racism. Man, that is, a, that is a hand grenade word. It's a hand grenade word because there's a lot of there's a lot of strong feelings on either side of that word. It's not a word that is a neutral vanilla word. It invokes strong emotions from people who think it does exist and who've experienced it and others who are like, it doesn't exist. It, it's a powerful word when we start talking about structures and systems and we don't have the time to unpack that all or to define that or to think about that today, but that raises a question. And the question is this, if there is in our culture still today realities or structures or facts that do create this division and that create one people group from feeling injustice or not being treated equally. If those things do exist, then the question is, as Christians who are people to think about justice, who to think about unity, wouldn't we also want to be people who think about trying to do away, or what do we do with some of those structures? Because we want to be people who pursue justice in all areas. We want to be people as disciples of Jesus who pursue justice in all areas, and certainly justice when it comes to fair treatment of people who look different than us. We want to do that because that's what Jesus wants. 
So hand in hand with this idea of valuing relationships with people different than us, this idea actively pursue justice and equity for those treated unjustly. We are, a suggestion to, to engage in this is actively pursue justice and equity for those who are treated unjustly. <clears throat> I have thought about, there ain't a topic in scripture that I haven't preached on. Well, maybe there's one. <laughs> But man, there's been a lot of things the book has taken to me, and I, I'm, I don't shy away from things that are in the book. I'm not shying away from this, but man, I've thought about this a lot this week. I've thought about this a lot this week. I've been preaching for 28 minutes. We're going to go a little long, so maybe the next three or four minutes is going to be me just up here with a mic telling you what I thought about, right? Maybe this is going to be my own personal counseling session, and you just happen to be listening to me talk about my own story. I am 48 years old. I know, it's shocking, the gasp because I'm like 28, right? I look 28. I'm in salt. the apex of health. I am 48 years old. I was the kid who probably my first baby, my first diaper was changed in a church nursery probably. I have swum in the waters of white evangelical Christianity for 48 years. I've been a pastor in the waters of white evangelical Christianity. Our church in Savannah was uh, more diverse than Calvary, right, but still predominantly white. This is predominantly a white church. And, man, I've thought about what, what's, what I've heard, what I've experienced, thought about what I've heard preached about. I've thought about what I've preached about. I've thought about how there is in white evangelical churches amazing um, freedom, comfort, preaching pastors, preaching about so many issues that come out of the book, right? So many different issues. Pastors will get up, talk about it, pound the pulpit about it, passion about it, right? Engage their congregation. I remember, yeah, I don't remember the year. I think it was the 80s. You can Google it. You can Google it now if you want, whatever. Last Temptation of Christ was a movie that came out. And I remember being uh, in Trumbull, Connecticut, and I remember back in the day, in the greatest generation ever, at the Trumbull Mall. Y'all ever been to the Trumbull Mall? There's like one store left there, right? It's like a fish store. You pay a buck and see a trapped turtle. I hear it's really creepy. I've not come. I don't know. But at the Trumbull Mall, there used to be a movie theater, United Artists Movie Theater. It's where the little L.A. fitness thing is now, okay? I remember in the 1980s, when this movie was being produced that some Christians thought contradicted this book and uh, negatively, uh, you know, ne had negative implications about Jesus. I remember hearing, let's go pick it. Let's go get a group of us Christians and let's write on signs and stand outside the United Arts. Don't go to the movie. Don't go to the movie. Right? Actively engaging in picket. I'm not the issue isn't whether that was something that should have been picketed or shouldn't have been picketed. That's an issue for another day based on conviction, but the issue, point of this is, but we felt very comfortable, not me, but white evangelical Christians, we, we, we talked about that. Teletubbies. Remember the Teletubbies? Some of you don't, because you're young. Others of us do, because we're not quite as young. The Teletubbies, they were like four creepy, fuzzy little creatures that lived on a green hill that popped out of these little burrows, and they sounded like this. Okay? <clears throat> For some reason, there was a Teletubby that 
a swath of white evangelical Christians were very vocal against we should boycott the Teletubbies because of this. Whether that was valid or not is an issue for another day. The issue is from pulpits, from community groups, from communications, boycott Teletubbies. Disney made certain policies in their HR departments about giving benefits to same-sex relationship partners, and there was a swath of white evangelical Christianity who's like, you got to cancel your Disney Plus subscription now. Don't ever go on Splash Mountain again. And passionately rallied people in churches on that issue. White Christianity speaks into some issues like that that they think is sin. I'm not saying whether it is or isn't. I'm saying those conversations are had from pulpits. White evangelical churches weave into sermons concerns about policies and court decisions that have to do with issues of abortion or homelessness. If you went to the Passion Conferences in Atlanta, which probably none of you did because it's like, where's, what, who cares what goes on in Atlanta, right? I'm not going to. Passion Conferences, back two, four years ago or so, man, sex trafficking was a big concern swaths of white evangelical Christianity spoke out against sex trafficking. We're concerned about water for people who don't have water. When the Supreme Court issued a law or affirmed a law that said that homosexual marriage was constitutional, white evangelical churches spoke about that. We spoke about it. I think we spoke about it in a way that was educational, informative, and absolutely balanced truth and love, and I'm pleased with the way we did it. But there was no concern for any church, really. Most, a lot of churches talking about that political issue. Evangelical Christians, white, talk about Ten Commandments coming down from walls of town halls and whether there should be prayer in schools. And sometimes when those conversations are had from pulpits or community groups or emails or video announcements, man, I I don't know if I've ever heard anybody who said, whoa, whoa, pastor, you're being too political. You're talking about homeless, like, yeah, you're kind of edging into politics now. We address those things. We engage in those things, many churches. Again, whether it's right or not isn't the point. The point is that those are conversations that often tend to be freely had. And I guess the question is, in the 1940s, when subdivisions were the booming new thing, and there was a law, there were zoning deed and restriction laws that said a black family or black individual cannot buy a house in these subdivisions. Did the white evangelical church say anything about that? Does the white evangelical church get out their picket signs and go stand in front of a public school and protest the disparity between some schools that black young children have to go to compared to other schools in suburban towns that are largely white young children in towns in which blacks at one point couldn't even buy a house by law. Do we protest those things? Do we protest things today? They're still treating brothers and sisters in Jesus unfairly. Or when we start tiptoeing into those issues, is there this big flashback that says, whoa, 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 that's politics. There's a lot of other things 
that are linked with political policies and court decisions and laws that white evangelical churches talk about. We talk about boycotting Splash Mountain and Teletubbies. Where are our voices on the issues that negatively impact our brothers and sisters in Jesus of other races and other backgrounds who have other experiences than we do today? Isaiah 1, 17 says this, and I love the, 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 the tense of the verbs, right? This is God shaping what he wanted the people of Israel to be, his kingdom people in this time. And all of these values that I'm about to read are reincorporated in the New Testament in terms of what kingdom life looks for us now, where it says, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Those verbs are active verbs. It doesn't say, ah, think about, be passive about, don't do anything about, seek justice, correct oppression, do it. Because that's what God wants his disciples to be involved in doing among a host of other things within our discipleship. Last thing, and I am sorry for going long. I, I am. I know some of you came. It's your first time in mask, and you're like, the dude yaps about 30 minutes, but it's been longer than that. I apologize. But here's the last thing. Next week, it'll be like not this long. Care about this issue. Care about this issue. Question for us as we end is, do we care about growing as disciples of Jesus? Do we care about that? And do we care if issues of racism and prejudice are hindering our growth as disciples of Jesus? If you were to learn that brothers and sisters in Jesus with a different skin color or background were not being treated fairly or justly, would you care? If you were to learn that brothers and sisters of a different skin color or ethnic background were not being treated fairly or justly, would you care? And the last question is this. And I'm not saying you don't. I'm not. Please, please, I'm not. I'm asking the question because this is an issue of discipleship. And do we care enough to ask God, like I challenged last week, to reveal sin to us in this issue? God chose this text today. <clears throat> I didn't. Is it a hot-button moment to talk about it? Sure it is. Am I talking about it because it's on our TV screens today? No, I'm talking about it because six months ago, today we're supposed to talk about Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 or whatever. And just one last thought. And, I, I, man, I, somebody even mentioned this yesterday. We as a staff mentioned this the, 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 in our staff meetings Tuesdays and Thursdays. Do you guys know Plato? Yeah. Okay, go back to me once again to the 80s. I'm gonna, I told you last week I'm going to keep rocking the 80s till you put me in a coffin. Go back to the 80s, right? I used to love, I don't think I loved in the 80s because I was a teenager. Go back, man, I love Play-Doh. You open up the container, open up the container with me, and the best thing right now is that smell. I mean, what is that? Can I eat that for breakfast? No, children, you can't eat it for breakfast. But it smells so good. You take the Play-Doh. 
you know, if your parents loved you enough for Christmas, they would get you that little thing then that you put the Play-Doh in and it was like a mold and you would press it and something would come out of the mold that was different than what you put into the mold. Here's what a lot of folks have mentioned and they've mentioned it and I think it and a lot of, you know what, that Play-Doh, man, that, that was Calvary Church before COVID. We were something. And I think COVID has been a mold that God has put our church into. And we've been pressed. And there is something different that is going to come out of the other side of this. September is not going to look like last September. And I don't know what it's going to look like. But I do know maybe God has us thinking about issues of racism and justice. Because that's part of the mold that he's putting in and part of what we will continue to think about when we get pressed out of that mold into whatever Calvary Church looks like after the season is done. Seek justice. And the question is, will we care? I'm going to pray. I'm going to sing a song. I do apologize for going long. It will not happen next week, um, but it happened this week. So thank you. <laughs> Let me pray. Uh, Father, you know our hearts and... Um, Man, God, I appreciate the people of this church and am absolutely convinced that for many of us who are white Christians, God, we do care about what others who are different than us go through, and we are grieved at the injustice of it. Um, and, and so for a bunch of us, Father, I think we just need wisdom in how we engage and participate in a helpful way that is helpful to people who feel injustice and in a way that aligns with what you would have us do as believers. You are shaping us, Father, um, every century, every decade, this has been your church, and you have areas in which you want to grow us, and you have amazing values that are strengths of ours, Father, that you want to build upon, and I know we're in a season of that now. We always will be being your people, and so, Father, may we just look to you for wisdom in how you're shaping and how you're growing us as we continue to press into and to be the kind of people you want us to be. Thanks. Amen.